Two quick things before we get underway tonight. Uh, first of all, at lunchtime every day, I sit at the same table, not because I've got a particular problem, but just I always sit at the far corner in that, the table at that far corner because I really want to make myself available for anyone who's here, and I know there's quite a number who are here, who are not yet followers of Jesus. I'm so pleased and thankful that you've come to annual conference, which is a very brave thing to do, but you've come and you've got questions and you're checking out Jesus, I think that's fantastic. And I want to make sure that I'm available, if you've got any questions, I would just love to have lunch with you and chat with you, and if that's a bit intimidating, I'm actually a very friendly person, and bring along a, uh, bring along a friend, come and have lunch, and every lunchtime at annual conference, I end up having good chats with people, so I'm always over in that far corner. Now, if, if you're a Christian person and you've got some question on, you know, Romans 4 verse 3, no, I don't know what that is, I just picked it randomly, but you've got some very specific question and it's burning and you've got to get it answered and it's lunchtime, then bad luck. I am not going to talk with you. Don't come and speak with me because I want to keep myself available for those who are checking out Jesus and you've got me at breakfast and at dinner and at every other time and so, okay, so come and check me out at lunchtime, I'd love to have time with you. Second thing, over there, you can see there's some tables over there, there's a fantastic bookstall that's provided by uh, the Wandering Bookseller, is a company, a Christian bookshop, uh, it's based up at Katoomba, and they do a fantastic job every year at annual conference of bringing a whole bunch of really quality Christian books, and I want to commend it to you here at the beginning of the week and say, make sure you go and spend some quality time over there in the course of the week and buy yourself at least one decent Christian book. Just do yourself a favour and buy one. It might take you a year to get around to reading it. And then it might take you another two years to actually finish reading it. It'll still do you a world of good. So why don't you start this week, buy yourself one decent Christian volume. There's all sorts of amazing stuff over there. I picked up a few literally in about three minutes. I went around and went, yep, that's good. I just grabbed a whole bunch. The first one, coming up on the screen, you'll see it. The Cross of Christ. <clears throat> now, why are you laughing at me? The reason that people are laughing at me is because many years ago, I said of this book at an annual conference, if you don't read this book by the time you sort of, you're meant to finish uni, then they should not let you graduate. I really think this is one of those fantastic, classic Christian expositions of what does the cross of Jesus really mean for us? This book by John Stott is just absolutely fantastic. I, I have a first edition copy that I bought when I was in first year at annual conference. It took me about four years to read three quarters of it and it took me another 10 years to read the last quarter, which was dumb because the last quarter was awesome. I just never got around to finishing it. But can I highly recommend this book? There's a whole bunch of them over there and I think this is a great book to read with friends. Form a little book club, read a chapter, then talk about it, then meet again in three weeks, having read the next, that's a great book. I'm going to run through some of these other ones. If uh, you're just checking out the Christian faith or you've just become a Christian recently, here's a great little book called The God Who Speaks Life. It's really, really thin, really tiny, written by an ex-EUer. Fantastic introduction to the Christian faith. 
you might like to read that or read it with a non-Christian friend after you've read Uncover Mark together. Here is another one called You Can Change by Tim Chester. It's about God's transforming power for our sinful behaviour and negative emotions. Do you struggle sometimes to live a holy life? Tim Chester, I think, has written a really helpful book here talking to us about how actually with the help of God, the guidance of His Word and the power of His Holy Spirit in your life, you can change. You can live God's way. This is a really helpful book. You might like to pick that up on the bookstore. Or what about suffering? There's something that every Christian should think about. You might not experience much suffering now, but one day, you live in a fallen world, you will. And this book, written by Paul Grimmond, who uh, lives here in Sydney and has had some significant suffering in his own life. And he's written this great little book called Suffering Well, The Predictable Surprise of Christian Suffering. So you might like to pick that one up. Here's a good one about making decisions, written by another, uh, another campus worker, Mikey Lynch, down in Tasmania. He's written a book called The Good Life in the Last Days, Making Choices When Time is Short. You might like to have a look at that one, but it'll give you some interesting food for thought. Or if you're just still, still not interested in books, here's one on sex. That might get you interested. It's called Real Sex by uh, Lauren Winner, which, and it's one of, the, one of the best books I've read uh, by a Christian on the topic of sex. And it's called, uh, the subtitle is The Naked Truth About Chastity. That's a really, really helpful book, and she has a very interesting, thoughtful approach. So that's good. And then one last one. There's a whole bunch of books over there on bringing the gospel and doing ministry amongst people of different cultures. All sorts of cultures. There's good resources over there. And here's one that I've read. It's, again, a tiny little book. I like thin books. This one's called Witnessing to Western Muslims, a worldview approach to sharing faith by Richard Schumach. Another guy, Australian guy, Really helpful little book on how do you share the gospel with people who are living in the West but come from Muslim background. All sorts of great, great books over there. So make sure you go and have a look at that and get yourself a book. Great. Let's get underway. Oh, thank you. Another glass of water. I've already got one on the other side. Clearly I need help. <laughs> thank you, Matt. Very thoughtful. Okay, let's get started. Irene was exhausted. She'd worked hard to get where she was. She had a great ATAR. She had a uni transcript with more distinctions and HDs than credits. She'd done an exchange semester overseas. She'd done the internships during uni holidays to improve her CV. Now she was in a prestigious graduate program, putting in long, long hours, though she had to admit the pay was good. But Irene was exhausted. And to be honest, she was really wondering what it all meant. Was this who she was? All her life, people had pushed her to be a certain person, to achieve to the next level. And yet, with all that she'd achieved, this still didn't feel right. What should she do with this growing sense of emptiness, unfulfilledness inside? I just want to be me. That felt right. But she wasn't so sure anymore who that me was meant to be. 
Do you get where Irene is coming from? The longing for authenticity. We live in what one philosopher has called the age of authenticity. We are each on an individual quest to find and live out our own realisation of humanity. But as we go about that quest, we're surrounded by voices who tell us who we should be, who we should become. I think it's going to come up on the screen for you here. There we are. You're on this quest to realise your humanity. But you keep hearing all these voices telling you who you should be, who you should become. You're overwhelmed, in fact, by choice and the responsibility that comes with these decisions. What if you choose wrong? What if I end up stuck in a job or a relationship that just isn't me, that doesn't feel right? What does it really mean for me to be my true self, to be who I am? We're on this quest surrounded by voices, so we have to put up some boundaries. We'll keep it on the screen, thanks. We have to put up some boundaries, some boundaries to restrict who we listen to. We might listen to our friends, we might listen to our family, or maybe we won't. You might have some heroes or wise sages whose advice you respect, but we have to put up some boundaries. You can't listen to everyone. But we don't just put up walls to let some voices in and keep others out. We put a ceiling in place too. We've excluded God from our questing. And I suggest that's why we share Irene's sense of dissatisfaction. Her uneasy sense of vacuousness with what her life has amounted to. We need to open up ourselves again to what God has to say. We need to punch some holes in the skylight, into that ceiling, that ceiling that our culture has imposed on us so that we can now reconnect with the one true God who, according to the Christian Bible, has made us and knows us. He knows the innermost secrets of our hearts, who has plans for us and who loves us more than we can know. In fact, we need to not just punch some skylights in the ceiling, we need to dismantle as much of that ceiling as possible, so we can be fully open to the one true God and experience relationship with Him, the relationship He's made possible in His Son, Jesus. Because when we do that, when we open ourselves up to genuine relationship with the one true living God in Jesus, that's when we become who we're really meant to be. Now, what's any of this got to do with justification or righteousification? as we thought about this afternoon. Thank you. Well, remember from this afternoon that God's righteousness is His action in faithfulness to His creation and covenantal intentions to make things conform to His will. What does it mean then for people to be righteous? Well, you see there on page 14, for us to be righteous means to be living in correspondence to God's will and purpose for us as His creatures. The ruler, the standard against which our lives measure is God's will and purpose for us. When you're living in line with God's will and purpose for you, that's when you're righteous. Or we might say that's when you're really being authentic, when your life conforms to His will and purpose for you. Because now you're living in sync 
with the one true living God who made you, loves you, has a plan and purpose for you. The authentic life that you're looking for is the righteous life in line with God's good plan and purpose. And so it's worth pausing there for a moment and reflecting, how authentic is your life? Or using Bible language, are you righteous? Are you living in a way that fits with God's will and purpose for you as His creature? 60 years ago, in 1959, in the Great Hall at Sydney Uni, the then principal of more theological college, Broughton Knox, delivered the first annual Australian InterVarsity Fellowship Lecture. The InterVarsity Fellowship went on to become what we now know as the AFES, the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, of which the EU is a part. The topic of that first lecture, 60 years ago in the Great Hall at Sydney Uni, was the same topic we're looking at this week. It was justification. And there in the Great Hall at Sydney Uni, Broughton Knox made an important observation about trying to work out whether or not you're righteous. It's there on page 14, what he said. He said, when God's justification, his verdict of approval of men and women is under consideration, it is plain that both the standards of God and the true state of our condition in his eyes are important factors to be known. A moment's reflection will show that both of these, God's standard and his view of our natural condition, can only be known if God reveals them. That is, it's no good being like the person in the picture there, with your blindfold on, just blindly saying, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm righteous. When to be righteous actually means living in correspondence with God's will and His intentions for us as His creatures. We need God's perspective to know whether we're righteous or not. He's the final reference point for righteousness, not my own judgment. So what does God say? What has God revealed about His standard and our natural condition? Well, we're going to take a tour through the first three chapters of Romans to find that out. So if you've got your Bible there, it'd be really helpful to open your Bible or call it up on your phone. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Now, we're not going to look at every verse in these chapters. What I'm going to try and do is lay out, sort of do a helicopter ride through Romans 1 to 3 so you can get a feel for how the argument Paul makes lays out. So strap yourself in, here we go. And I've broken it up into some sections for you to make it a bit easier. And they've got some headings there. And we'll pop it up on the screen every now and then just to remind you where we're up to. So, first of all, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, this is the introduction. The Gospel of God concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we spent time looking at verses 1 to 17 of chapter 1 this afternoon in the first talk. So we won't repeat it now. I'll just remind you, verses 1 to 6, Paul summarised what the Gospel is. It's all about Jesus, His life and death and resurrection. And then in verses 16 and 17, he tells them what the Gospel does. We saw it this afternoon. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. God saves those who put their faith in the Gospel message about Jesus, no matter what background they're from, whether Jews or non-Jews. And that gospel message that he saves them through it reveals God's righteousness. That's the big story Paul is sharing here in Romans. Now, 
that the big story Paul is sharing is about God's righteousness is apparent from where Paul goes next. He talks about God's wrath, which is part of God's righteous response to human sin. So we're up to the next heading on page 15, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. God's righteous anger against sin, number one, Gentiles. If you're not familiar with the word, Gentiles means non-Jews. In the Old Testament Israelite way of thinking, the whole world falls into two camps. There's the Jews, God's chosen people descended from Abraham, and Gentiles, that's everybody else. Part of what Paul has just said in chapter 1 verse 16 is that the gospel cuts across that way of thinking. The gospel is God's power of salvation for everyone who believes, whether Jew or Gentile. But to help us understand how this shows God's righteousness, he has to make the case. Paul here is a bit like someone who tells you the answer and then tells you what the working is. You know, they say, oh, the answer is 27. Now I'll show you how, how to get that. Well, Paul's like that. He gives the conclusion first. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. And now he goes back to square one and explains it step by step. And he starts in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. How should God respond to the fact that we don't live authentic lives? that we don't live righteously according to His will and purpose. Maybe you think God shouldn't care. Well, then He wouldn't really be righteous Himself, would He? Remember, He's committed to fulfilling His good intentions for His creation. He can't just let sin destroy us and destroy the relationship we're meant to have with Him. So He can't just sweep our unrighteousness under the carpet as though it doesn't matter. No, it actually matters a lot. What our sin deserves is His anger, His wrath. And Paul starts with those who know the least about the one true God, the Gentiles, those who didn't have all the insights that the Jews had because of their interactions with God in the Old Testament days. And Paul shows that even without the benefits of the Jews, the Gentiles also have no excuse for their sin. Have a look in your Bible at what he says from verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, His eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things He's made. That is, you really can know that God exists and get a sense of His power just by looking at the world around us. And then he continues, So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honour Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. The right response to the God whose existence and power are on display in the world around us is to honour Him as God, to give Him thanks. But that's not what humans do. We worship all manner of other things. We swap out worshipping the true God for images. 
other created stuff, money, power, relationships, pleasure, success. That's the evidence that we're not righteous, that we're not truly authentic. We've been made for a relationship with the one true God who made us, loves us, but we won't honour Him, we won't give thanks to Him. Instead, we give ourselves to serving all these other fake non-gods, little g-gods of our own creation. That's the evidence that the Gentiles are not righteous. Now, most of Paul's readers at this point would have agreed that Gentiles who've rejected God, they're not righteous, they deserve God's anger, but then Paul turns it back on them. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. God's righteous anger against sin number 2, the hypocrites. Look in your Bible from chapter 2, verse 1, see what Paul says. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? See, if you're not genuinely honouring God as God in your own life and giving Him thanks, and instead you've swapped Him out and serving other created things, then even if you do know the truth about God, that won't save you from God's righteous anger against sin. Knowing the truth about God doesn't make you righteous. It's are you living in conformity with His goodwill and purpose for you? Are you honouring Him as God in your life or not? That's the question. Knowing the truth about God but not living it just makes you a hypocrite and means you're facing God's anger too. Have a look at how Paul concludes this bit in verse 5. But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So you're in no better situation than the Gentiles, who didn't know anything more of God than what they could work out from the world around them. Now Paul's just mentioned a particular day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The New Testament is consistent in announcing that there will be a final day when God calls time out on this creation and every single person will front up to Him and give an account for how we've lived. There really is a judgment day. And Paul then has a little aside here in verses 6 to 16 to fill out how this judgment day will work. Let's have a look from verse 6. For he will repay according to each one's deeds. To those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. While for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The principle God will use to judge the world is there in verse 6. God will repay each person according to their deeds and the consequence of being on the wrong side 
of that verdict are very severe. Look at the end of verse 8, wrath and fury. Verse 9, anguish and distress. Falling onto the wrong side of God's judgment is terrible and terrifying. Elsewhere, the New Testament says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Paul makes it very clear. It's the same for Jew and Gentile. Makes no difference what race, what nationality, what culture you come from. God uses the same standards with everyone. He shows no partiality. In fact, it's not just our deeds, our actions that are scrutinised. It's a thoroughgoing exposure and assessment of every aspect of our, cult, of our character. If you jump down a bit further to verse 16, Paul speaks of the day when, according to my gospel, God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. Even the secret thoughts of our hearts will be opened up to God's righteous judgment on that final day. When we'll all front up to Jesus Christ as God's appointed judge. You know, people get away with all sorts of things in human courts, which is a problem because you can never get real justice while there are still secrets. But on that final day of God's judgment, when Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead, there are no secrets. Everything is exposed. Paul then returns to his different categories of people. He's shown the Gentiles have a sin problem and the hypocrites too. And now he focuses on the Jews. The next section, chapter 2, verse 17 to 29. God's righteous anger against sin, number 3. Jews relying on having God's law but not keeping it. See, the Jews knew they were in a privileged position. The one true God had revealed himself to them in the Old Testament and given them his law to keep. But just having access to the law, even knowing the law yourself, that doesn't make you righteous. Have a look at what Paul says from verse 17 of chapter 2. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relation to God and know His will and determine what is best because you are instructed in the law, and if you're sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, that teach others, will you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You that forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? You that abhor idols, do you rob temples? You that boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? This was the Jews' problem. They had the law, but they didn't keep it. God's good intention for them was to live His way, not just know what it was meant to look like. The real problem is with the heart. Jump down to verse 28. Paul challenges them as to what it really means to be a Jew, one of God's people. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Such a person receives praise, not from others, but from God. 
And so then Paul comes to his conclusion in chapter 3, verse 9 to 20. No one is righteous because all are under the power of sin. Verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. The Bible teaches universal failure to live righteously. Note how it says that all are under the power of sin. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. All have sinned. Under our own steam, we all fail to love God and fail to love our neighbour. Despite all your best efforts in this regard, you do not get an HD in righteousness. That might be shocking for those of you who've never not got an HD in anything. You do not get an HD in righteousness. In fact, not even a distinction. Not even a credit. Not even a pass. Not even a conceded pass, not even a terminating pass. Did you even know that existed? But yeah, not even a terminating pass. You fail. Now, we all fail at times, though we never like to admit it. We can spend a lot of effort actually covering up our failures, excusing them, but here we all fail. Without the work of His Spirit in our heart. Because as Paul has just shown, whether Gentile or Jew, in our natural state, we do not honour God as God in our lives. We're self-serving. We swap God out for other things. We don't live in line with His goodwill and purpose for us. Without God's work in our life, we all fail. It's an F for you. And an F for me. Now you might say, ah, so what? God has His absolute standard, which we all absolutely fail. Big deal. So what? Does it really matter? Yes. Yes, yes, yes it matters. The Bible says the consequences of our sin are serious in the extreme. What did chapter 2 verse 8 tell us? That was our destiny. For those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury anguish and distress. God's righteous judgment on our unrighteousness is wrath and fury. Friends, we have to take off the blindfolds and grasp the fact that our situation in our natural state is not good. Our lack of righteousness leaves us facing God's just wrath and fury. This is a massive, universal Desperate problem. Do you uh, watch disaster movies? Oh, I'll correct that. Do you watch really bad disaster movies from the 1990s? Good, thank you. If you do, then you'll get where this illustration is coming from. If not, just, just, just imagine. Imagine for a moment that there was a massive asteroid heading towards the Earth. All the best scientists across the world agree, this asteroid is going to be bigger than the one that wiped out the dinosaurs. 
It's going to be catastrophic. They're saying it's likely that it will wipe out all life from the earth, except the cockroaches. I don't know why, but the cockroaches always seem to survive. We are facing universal destruction of all humanity. Now, just imagine that that was the case. Can you imagine for a moment the effect that that would have on us, the panic that would set in, the desperate search for a solution, the marshalling of all of humanity's resources, intellectual, financial, physical, political. Who cares about the Russians and the Americans anymore? We've we've got to come up with a plan. We will be doing whatever could be done to avert this coming disaster. And the concern would be entirely appropriate. It would be entirely the right thing to do because it's a massive, universal, desperate problem. And yet we know that there's a day of judgment coming when all humanity, every single person, will be found wanting before God and face what they deserve, His wrath and fury and condemnation. We know that to be the case. And yet we calmly go on today like we did yesterday. There's no particular urgency. There's no desperate questioning. What can we do? It's like we think it's not actually going to happen. But it is. And we have God's assurance that it's coming Because he raised Jesus from the dead to show us that he's the one he's appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Our situation as human beings without some sort of divine intervention is desperate and hopeless. We are all unrighteous and we know what we will face. How do you think God feels about this situation? Sometimes the God of the Christian Bible is portrayed by others as delighting in punishment and death. That's just not true. He's righteous. He wants to see His good intentions for His creatures fulfilled. He doesn't want us to be condemned, even though that's what we deserve, because we rejected Him. He doesn't want that to happen. That's not His character. When God looks on our hopeless situation, everything changes because of who He is. Because of His love for us, even though we made ourselves His enemies, because He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but wants us to turn from our wickedness towards Him and live, He does not treat us as we deserve. He wants to treat us better than we deserve. He wants to show us in a word, grace, undeserved kindness. That's who He is, a God of grace. Everything Paul has said in Romans 1 to 3 is leading up to this next point, the moment of God's intervention into our desperate predicament. It's there on page 16. 
but God. The story of amazing grace. Paul reaches this point in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. God's righteousness now revealed, not in wrath and judgment this time, but in grace, his undeserved kindness, when he justifies the unrighteous in Jesus. Let's pick up Paul's argument in chapter 3, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Notice a couple of things here. God's own righteousness continues to be Paul's overarching theme. See it most clearly there in verses 25 and 26. Secondly, the emphasis is on all, the universality of the human problem and the universal divine solution. There's a universal problem, verse 23, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. That's what Paul's been making, this point, up to this point in the first three chapters. It includes everyone, Jew and Gentile. But now there's a universal divine solution, verses 23 and 24. All are justified through Christ Jesus to be received by faith. Verse 25 is a wonderful summary of how God shows himself righteous in securing his plans for his his creatures by putting forward Jesus Christ as a sacrifice We're going to look at that particularly tomorrow night. But for now, I want to focus in on what Paul says there in verse 24 about what God achieves through Jesus. He says, we are justified by His grace as a gift. Here is God's ultimate grace to us. The kindness He shows us that we don't deserve. We're justified by Him. Now, that the one true God, Yahweh, is gracious, that's not new news. I'm going to leave you to read the passage there from Exodus 34, which is on page 16, where some 1,400 years before Jesus' birth, Yahweh revealed Himself to Moses as the God who is merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And I'm going to let you guess who the seven figures there are on my wonderful diagram from Old Testament history as examples of those who experience God's gracious forgiveness of their sins. It's pretty easy to work out who the seven figures are. After all, I mean, my drawings are pretty awesome. I can... And I'm going to also skip over the section on the top of page 17, really truly free and leave you to read Romans 5, where Paul really goes to town emphasising the free gift nature of our justification. I want to jump straight to halfway down page 17. I want to start digging deeper into what justification means. So the first thing to note is that when the Bible speaks of justification... It's not so much make someone into a righteous person 
but rather to restore to a righteous relationship and declare that a person is now righteous. Or on the bottom of page 17, Broughton Knox put it like this, justification is the act of God which admits a person to stand in his presence as accepted and approved. So when God justifies you, you are accepted into his presence as approved. I mentioned in talk one, the image of justification is related to the law court. But this time it's Yahweh, the one true living God, who sits as judge. If you look at the top of page 18, in the courtroom, justification is when the judge declares you to be righteous, declares you to be okay. Because if the judge says, I've decided, you're okay, then you go, all right, I'm okay. If the judge says it, then that's the way it is. Do you remember the the wonderful song we sang earlier tonight? I am, how does the line go? Say it loudly for me. I am. I wrote it down and now I've forgotten it. I am that you say I am? I am, thank you, I knew there was a missing word. I am who you say I am. That's justification. I am who you say I am, not whoever who I think I am. If the judge says, you're okay, then you're okay. Now here we come really to the whole key point of this talk and really of the whole conference. And if you've been following everything that we've been trying to do up to this point, you might start to appreciate how astounding and amazing this is. Even though we are sinners and deserve His condemnation, God justifies everyone who has faith in Jesus. He takes us as sinners deserving condemnation, but who've put their faith in Jesus, and He puts us in a right standing with Himself. He declares us to be righteous, even though we're unrighteous. He declares us to be okay with Him, even though we weren't. Now, this is really astounding. We are not righteous in ourselves. We are not okay with God. We all sin. We're all under the power of sin. But as a great act of grace, God justifies us. He declares us to be righteous. And He admits us to stand in His presence as accepted and approved. That's huge news. It's so unexpected. This is precisely what you would not expect, given our natural condition as sinners before God. Have you ever heard people complain, what's God ever done for me? What's He ever given me? Well, here it is. As a sheer, undeserved gift of grace, God justifies the unrighteous sinners who put their faith in Jesus. He puts us in that right standing with Himself when we in ourselves are all unrighteous. Now, I want you to um, close your booklet for a minute. Close your book. Yeah, we get get sort of interactive at this point, right? Close the book. 
Close the book. Right, close the book. Right. Let me introduce you on the screen to the two whistling ladies. These are the two whistling ladies. Whistling lady left, on the left, and whistling lady right, on the right. That's not about their political voting, by the way. That's just <laughs> their position on the screen. My question is this. My question to you is this. Get your thinking caps on. When God justifies us, how does he do it? Does he do it as we see in whistling lady left? That is, God says, you're righteous, okay, by me. And so we can then respond, I'm in right relationship. Or when God justifies it, does he do it in the way we see in whistling lady right? Where God says, I'll make you righteous, and then with his help we become righteous, so that then God can declare, you are righteous, okay by me. Which does God do when he justifies us? Whistling lady left or whistling lady right? I'm going to give you a minute to decide and then we're going to vote. But you can talk to the person next to you. Why don't you see what they think? Okay. All right. So I'll remind you the question. The question is... When God justifies us, which does he do? Is he doing whistling lady left or does he do whistling lady right? Who says whistling lady left? Who says whistling lady right? right. Now, see, thank you very much. It's, It's a bit of a tricky question because both are true. God does both. But when the Bible talks about justification, he means whistling lady left. Open your books again, we're on page 18. Let me explain it to you. In the Bible, justification, righteousification, is not about God making you righteous, which is whistling lady right. Justification is God declaring you to be righteous as an undeserved free gift of grace and restoring you then to a right relationship with himself. So whistling lady left is justification. Whistling lady right is what we call progressive sanctification. The continuing process by which God is at work in us to make us more holy and to help us conform to his righteous intentions for us. So when you become a Christian and put your faith in Jesus, you are both justified by God, declared by Him to be okay, and He starts to work in you, changing you to enable you to live more righteously. So both left and right are true of what God does to and in you. You can't separate them entirely, but it is important to distinguish between the two not get them confused. What the Bible means by justification is whistling lady left. Now, why does this matter? Why is it so important to distinguish between justification and progressive sanctification? Four points there on page 18. You might like to jot them down. Here we go. First of all, why is this distinction important? It upholds grace. It upholds grace. If we think that God declares us to be righteous only when we're changed to become more righteous 
then you'll start to think you're justified by what you do rather than by God's gracious, that is, undeserved gift. We will lose an important aspect of God's grace, namely that He justifies the ungodly. He doesn't have to make you godly before He justifies you, says you're now okay. He justifies the ungodly. Second, this distinction protects the assurance of salvation. It protects the assurance of salvation. If justification is based on God changing you to become more holy or righteous, how do you ever know if you've been changed enough to really be righteous yet? Your assurance is all left up in the air. Which leads to the third point. This confusion between these two is one of the problems in Roman Catholic theology. The way the Roman Catholic Church officially defines justification is that it includes progressive sanctification. The Roman Catholic Church calls Whistling Lady right justification. You can see this in some of the excerpts there on your page from the official catechism of the Catholic Church from 1994. Note in the first quotation there from paragraph 1992, justification, it says, conforms us, there's the idea of internal change, to the righteousness of God who makes us inwardly just by the power of His mercy. It's all about internal change. Or again, at the bottom quotation from paragraph 1989, justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. Now, you might be saying, well, so what? Seems like an argument over definitions here, well, one level it is, but it's actually a very important argument. When you read the Bible and you read Paul in Romans 3, like we just did, saying they are justified by His grace as a gift, what does he mean? Does he mean whistling lady left? Does he mean, as the Roman Catholic Church says, both whistling lady left and whistling lady right? But I think when you look carefully at all the places where that word justify or righteous is used in the New Testament, it just does not seem to include whistling lady right. Justification in the New Testament refers to that declaration God makes on the ungodly as an act of sheer grace. And it's actually because they've brought sanctification into their definition of justification that I think many Roman Catholics lack assurance. They're not sure whether they're sufficiently righteous or not to be justified according to the definition that the Roman Catholic Church uses for justification. Fourth point, this distinction matters because it empowers Christian living. Understanding that God has already declared us to be righteous at the very start of our Christian life, that provides great energy for going on and living the Christian life. You're living the Christian life not to earn your way into right standing with God, you've already got right standing with God. You're already in a right relationship with Him and that gives you great energy for living it out. Which brings us then to the results of God's free gift of justification. Two wonderful consequences that flow from God's justification of us. Top of page 19. You can see there, look how happy that dude is at the top of page 19. He understands justification. 
And there's two things that he's rejoicing in. You might like to jot them down. The first one is, because he's justified, he's now got peace with God. Peace with God. As Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained this access to this grace in which we stand. We're no longer enemies with God because of our rejection of Him. We are now at peace. We're no longer facing God's wrath and condemnation for our sin. We now have peace with Him because we're justified. And if you've ever had that sense of inauthenticity in your life, if you know that you are unrighteous and need peace with God, then this is a most precious and wonderful truth. That since we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've heard of John Floriani. He's an Australian musician, artist. Last month he released a song. Except I should be more hip with the lingo. What do you say? He dropped it. <laughs> yeah. He dropped his latest tune. Yeah, he released a song. It's called this. It's called Before the Devil Knows I'm Dead. It's from his album that he's just released last month called Sin. John says, I looked up some interviews with him, John says he's not religious and that really is the point of the song. See, his girlfriend is religious, but he's not. And he knows that he's done plenty of bad things. He knows he's unrighteous. And so in this song he sings, I want to make it to heaven before the devil knows I'm dead. Because in his mind, if the devil finds out he's dead, he won't get to go to heaven. He'll be going to hell. So we're going to have a listen to this song. I'll put the words up on the screen. said pray for me there's something I've been meaning to ask you something on the tip of my tongue something I saw in my old man when I was young well the water wash away the blood and everything that I've done how can I save my name when the fire comes? I want to make it to heaven Before the devil knows I'm dead I don't know how to tell you Where you're going when you die they don't let the bad folk like me inside I know I promise forever But forever is a long, long time Can you stand and be alone in your afterlife? I want to make it to heaven 
John Floriani knows he needs peace with God. He says to his girlfriend, where you're going when you die, they don't let the bad folk like me inside. How can I save my name when the fire comes? And he's clear, that's because of what he's done. Will the water wash away the blood and everything that I've done? And his answer in the song, you better pray for me. Now, this is really tragic. Sadly, it's not enough of an answer. He needs justification. Like all of us, he needs God to justify him, to declare him righteous as a free gift of grace. How do you get hold of that? Well, Jesus tells a little story, I think, that answers that question. Look at the passage from Luke 18, which is printed there on page 19. Luke says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that's a religious guy, and the other a tax collector, that's someone who made a living from ripping off his fellow Israelites. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, Thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. So you would think, right, that this guy is the one who is in God's good books. But that forgets that Yahweh is gracious. Jesus then continues. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God... Be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's Jesus' surprising conclusion. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisee thought he was righteous. He thought he had peace with God, but he forgot that we're all unrighteous. We all fall short and live inauthentic lives. Whereas the tax collector, like John Floriani actually, he knew he needed help. He knew he needed God's grace. Yet unlike John in the song, the tax collector knew what he had to do. He called out to God for mercy. He asked God to be gracious to him. And he went home justified at peace with God, not the Pharisee who thought he had it all together. If John Floriari wants to make it to heaven, then he needs to follow the example of the tax collector in Jesus' story. It's as simple as asking God for that free gift of justification. That's what John needs to do. That's what we all need to do if we want to be saved from the judgment we know we all deserve. What's the second wonderful consequence from being justified? The answer, no condemnation from anyone. No condemnation from anyone. Look at what Paul says there in Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? 
It's Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Now, this is worth reflecting on. No one can bring any charge against you because God has declared you to be righteous. He's justified you. When the judge says, you're okay, you really are okay. Now, that doesn't mean that if you go and get caught shoplifting, you can say, sorry, mate, being justified by God, you know, Romans 3, all that, can't charge me, I'm done. That's not what Paul means. What he's saying is that when God declares you to be righteous, no one else can say otherwise. Once God says you're okay with him, then no one else can condemn you as not okay with him. Not another person, not the devil, not even yourself. You are right with God. I am who you say I am. See, we feel condemned all the time. The world condemns us as followers of Jesus. It says we're fools, throwing our life away after a whim of historical fiction. The devil tries to condemn us all the time, convincing us that we're not really good enough, that God doesn't really accept us, or at least he's not going to accept you. And tragically, we can, sometimes we condemn ourselves. We believe the devil's lies, that we're not really okay with God, or maybe we're condemned by our own perfectionism. We believe we can never match up, we're not okay unless we do everything perfectly. But listen to what Paul says. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, no one, because... It's God who justifies. He's declared you to be okay. He's righteousified you as a sheer act of grace. Who is to condemn? No one. By God's grace, you are right with God. Look at how Martin Lloyd-Jones put it there on page 20. I'm updating the language as I go here in his quote. A Christian is one who can never be condemned. Just, Just... Think about that for a moment. A Christian is one who can never be condemned. They can never come into a state of condemnation again. Because this is true of them, the Christian should never feel condemnation. They should never allow themselves to feel it. The devil will try to make them feel it, but one must answer the devil. Most of our troubles are due to our failure to realise the truth of this verse... There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've cried out to God for mercy, if you've put your trust in Jesus because he freely justifies the unrighteous as a gift of grace, you are righteous. This is the wonder of grace. Our justification by God is entirely unmerited. Our sins, for which we could never atone, they are forgiven. Our relationship with God, while we were still His enemies, it's restored. Our status, ungodly, unrighteous, it's overturned. Without any payment from us, without any desperate begging on our behalf, but purely motivated by God's kindness and His undeserved favour towards you. And because your justification is unmerited, you can be fully assured. See, Christians often wonder or worry about whether they're really saved. 
Can I really be sure God loves me? Am I really okay with Him? And what's often behind that question is the assumption that God's relationship with me depends on my effort. You know, if I've had a quiet time reading my Bible and praying, then God is happy with me and everything is okay. But if I've slipped up, then God's unhappy with me. Or there might be more serious issues. The lies that so easily sometimes spill from my mouth. The envy that's hidden in my heart. The addiction in which I keep indulging. The sexual relationship with the person I'm not married to. There was that time I physically abused somebody. The time I disrespected someone publicly as a way of getting ahead. There was the time I had that abortion. There was that time I didn't stand up as the person next to me was bullied. There's all those times I didn't respect my family. All those times I avoided doing what I knew was really the right thing. All those times I put me first, frankly, and everyone else, including God, was lucky to get what was left. See, we look at our own assessment of our righteousness and we assume God is working off the same scale. If I think that, then He must think that. But the wonder of justification by grace is that God's justification of you does not depend on your efforts. Justification is unmerited. He justifies the ungodly. Not because they deserve it or have paid for it, He justifies them as undeserving as they are because they've put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And so you are justified in His sight as a free gift. And since it's nothing to do then with what you've done or your own internal righteousness, you have full assurance. It's based on His declaration, not how good you've been. You have peace with Him. There's no one to condemn you. And that's why justification by grace is a source of abiding joy and humble confidence. Since our justification by God is unmerited, and it isn't affected by my good actions or my bad actions, it's a source of constant joy. You are justified. Praise God. Praise God for His grace. How wonderful is that? And since you're assured of this status through faith in Jesus, you have humble confidence in God's presence. We're not arrogant. How could we be when we know that our status as righteous is not what we deserve? But we have this humble confidence because our trust, our faith is not in ourselves and what we've done. It's in God and what He's done for us in Jesus. And tomorrow we're going to look particularly at what has God done in Jesus to make this declaration over us possible. Well, to finish, take the free gift. Maybe whoever you are, you need to do some business with God tonight. Maybe you need to confess some sin to Him. Maybe you need to cry out like the tax collector, Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Maybe you need to come to Jesus for the first time or for the hundredth time. Maybe you need to take hold once again of His amazing grace and just rejoice in it. Deal with that inauthenticity in your life. 
come to the gracious true God in your unrighteousness and take that free gift of justification that he offers you. Why don't you share with a friend tonight, straight after the session. Pray together. If you want someone to pray with, there'll be some of the EU staff workers down the front here at the end of every session and they would love to pray with you if that will be helpful for you. Make use of that this week. Bring things to God in prayer. If you feel God putting this on your heart tonight to take hold of this free gift of grace, of justification, if you feel God putting that on your heart tonight, then don't put it off. Grab hold of it. Take hold of it. That you might be justified, righteous, by the declaration of the one true living God. Let me lead us in prayer. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Heavenly Father, we give you great praise and thanks that you are the gracious God who justifies the ungodly as a free gift through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. What mercy and what amazing grace. We pray, Father, tonight, that every single person here might take hold of this free gift of grace that you have lavished on us, that we might be righteous by your declaration, that we might be freed from condemnation, that we might be the people you have made us to be, your children. We pray this in Jesus' great name and with joy and thanks in our hearts. Amen.